All right, guys, welcome. I'm glad that you're here. If you're someone who is seeking uncommon results, this podcast is for you. Success, happiness, and wisdom. What do these words mean to you? I think we can all agree that we'll probably all have slightly different definitions of each. In these podcasts, I get to dive deeply into conversations with some amazing innovators, influencers, and trendsetters that have had different versions of how they define the terms, yet have come out on the other side with amazing, uncommon results. At some point in their lives, they have decided to unshackle themselves from the norm and go beyond all boundaries. All right, everybody, welcome back to the show. I'm John Dwyer, and uh, I got a great guest today. I got Jamil Gandhi on the, on the podcast today. How you doing, man? Thanks for coming on. Thank you, John. I appreciate you having me on here. And Jamil, you're the uh, co-founder of Keegly, and uh, you yep. started that back in uh, 2014. Do you want to give our listeners just a little bit of background on that uh, and your company and what you have going on so far? Absolutely. So I uh, moved uh, to Phoenix, Arizona in, in December of 2012. Uh, and prior to that, I had been in real estate since you know 2002. I rolled the the wave up to uh, the bubble and uh, felt that crash hard and deep in the, in my life, you know, went, went uh, belly up in 2008, but I uh, was able to identify an opportunity in Phoenix, Arizona, because the market had just been so uh, terribly uh, devastated by the crash. Property values were a 10th of where they were pre-crash. And so uh, in 2012, we um, moved from actually Los Angeles at the time to, to Phoenix, Arizona. I grew up in Canada, but I moved from Canada to LA in 2012. Uh, from in 2000, sorry, in 2008. In 2012, we moved to Phoenix, Arizona and started trading in wholesale real estate and did that loosely uh, as a lone wolf until I met my two business partners, Josiah Grimes and, and Hunter Runyon. And them too, as long, along with myself and my sister, Rahima Atari, we formed Keegley. And Keegley is an, a nationwide wholesale operation. In fact, we're more of what you would call a business-to-business wholesaler, where we aggregate and curate all of the opportunities that these smaller wholesalers are going out and contracting and provide a marketplace that's easy, reputable uh, for rehabbers or other individuals, investors, buy and hold, portfolio owners, to be able to find these opportunities and, and, and see them all in one concise place. And for that, we take our fee. And so uh, Keegly, our, our nationwide brand, is actually in 180 markets now since our inception in 2014. So it's been uh, a meteoric rise and, and, and quite, a fun, uh, quite a fun time, actually. You know, and it's really interesting, too, because right before the show, we were talking about how in, in last year, you started to franchise it. Correct. And you don't, you don't see that a lot. You don't. You don't. You know, the whole... Wholesaling is is generally looked upon as entry level to real estate, and franchising is an exit strategy. It you know ultimately right, and so how do how do you turn an exit? How do you turn the entry point into an exit point? And uh, essentially, that's the way we we started it though. When we had the the initial uh, thought of what Keegley would be, the concept was a nationwide wholesaler, and and the reason for it was I was looking at the marketplace and I was looking at the state of affairs of the wholesale industry at the time and you know 2012 to 2014 it was very 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 uh, competitive very disjointed a killer be killed type of environment 
there wasn't a lot of collaboration. People were, you know, stepping on each other's toes, taking deals from each other. It was the wild, wild west and no rules, no holds barred and, and quite difficult place to navigate. What I was finding as well was the public opinion of wholesaling was starting to become tarnished. And the reason for it was that a lot of wholesalers would go put a property under contract and A, not know what price they needed to put the property under contract at for it to be a viable deal. Um, but B, if it was a good deal, they weren't spending enough time connecting with buyers to actually complete the deal. And as you, as I, as you and I know, when you're in a cash buyer situation, you should have the cash to be able to perform on your contract obligations. And, and we were finding it was just not the case. And a lot of deals were canceling and a lot of sellers were left high and dry. Some of whom I would, I would actually witness packed in U-Hauls on closing day and no funds to be seen, no wholesaler to be found. And now they're completely out. You know, they, they're, they're, in a, they're in a bind. Wow. Because of that, we realized that there was a vacuum in the marketplace that needed to be filled. And uh, that was in bringing buyers, bringing liquidity to those situations. And so what we do at Key Glee better than anyone else, in my opinion, is we formulate amazing buyers lists. So we're able to find those buyers that'll pay a premium for the opportunity, but also those ones that are looking for a reputable place to be able to find all of those opportunities in one spot. When you have 30 or 40 or 50 different wholesalers emailing you property, you don't know where deals are coming from, who the original contract holder is, the pricing is all over the place, and no one really vetting the opportunity based on the comparables and, and the validity of the deal, it becomes an a, a arduous task for a rehabber or a portfolio owner to go through and, and actually verify the information on all of those emails. And so what you can expect when working with Keegley is that we've actually vetted, verified, made sure the contracts are actually real, made sure that the values are there, made sure that the opportunity is, is available. And when you, and you work with us, you can be certain that your earnest money is, is not at risk unless you, know, you, you don't perform on the deal, but you'll always get clear and marketable title. There's just a level of uh, sophistication we bring to the transaction style. And uh, because of that, the, the model has definitely caught fire and we've been doing quite well because of it. Talk about, you know, creating a franchise. I mean, there's, there's a lot of things, a lot of background, and it's not just easy to do, right? So what are some of the things that you've had to go through or things that, you know, when you had this vision back in 2012 um, or 2014 even, um, like, what has, like what has transpired or what things as you were creating this franchise or your, your market, what things were you like, hey, man, this is, I didn't even realize that we needed to kind of do this or things that, you know, roadblocks or even things that, I guess, as you're trying to create a franchise, things that you would do and um, every time over, you know, do it yeah. day in and day in. That's a great question, John. One that I haven't been asked before, so I'm really happy that you did. The, the reality is, is when you're franchising, you are now opening yourself up to complete scrutiny. Mm -hmm. Right. You're being, you know, fi financials are audited. Your business model is completely scrutinized. You're looked at by regular regulators. You're looked at by the federal government. You're completely on under the microscope. Right. And so first things first, we had to when we started Keegley, we knew that this exit was uh, 
our end goal. And so we started with the end in mind, meaning that everybody at Key Glee holds a real estate license. You know, we know that you can't trade, negotiate or contracts or unless you're the principal unlicensed. And so everyone who is staffed at, at our office actually holds a real estate license because they're negotiating contracts. They're discussing price with people. And because they're doing that, if they weren't licensed, they'd be operating uh, illegally. And so from, from jump, we had all of the licensing in place. In addition to that, all of our buyers list and all of the relationships that we have, have a, a clear opt-in trail. So if you look at any of our data, if you look at any of our lists, everything has uh, an origin that is, is uh, traceable to where that relationship began. And we know that when you are under the scrutiny of regulators, they're gonna be looking at stuff like that. And so we really, really developed a business knowing that all of the I's had to be dotted and all the T's had to be crossed in order for this to actually materialize. In addition to that, our finances are in the most immaculate shape you would ever, you'd ever see, you know, from understanding our costs to understanding taxation, to understanding how uh, funds should flow through, how to get paid, how to take distributions. All of it was done uh, very high level so that we, we knew when we were going to have to public, sorry, publicize our financials, that they would be not only real, but also um, people would see that there was a high level of sophistication behind them. And so that in addition to uh, the franchising process. So for anyone who's unaware of what it requires to become a franchise, you have to create what's called a franchise disclosure document or the FDD. The FDD is a very, very, very difficult document to create. Ours is around 200 pages and it essentially is the entire scope of business uh, that, we, that we operate in. And it, and it presents the opportunity in a way where somebody can really digest what they'd be buying or what they'd be getting into and in, in move into buying into our business model. In addition to the franchise disclosure document, as I had mentioned earlier, audited financials. And so we'd have to hire a, uh, we had to hire a third party auditor to come in, look at our books, not only for uh, our, ourselves, but also the business, it's not only for the business, but also ourselves to make sure that we were, we were all good. In addition to that, you had to go through substantial background checks to make sure that all of us were savory characters that, that people would want to actually invest in or invest with to do business with. So it's, it's, it's extremely time consuming. It's extremely expensive. And a lot of it has to be done at a state level. And so, yes, you are uh, registering federally, but then you also have to register state by state by state. And every one of those states have separate rules and application processes that you have to follow. So seeing that we are franchised in all 50 states is, uh, is, is, is pretty uh, incredible in my opinion. And where's, where's been most of the franchisees coming from or the franchises coming from? Is it, is it um, kind of scattered out all over? I, I looked at the map real, real, real quickly, um, but where do you see most of your um, uh, franchisees coming in from in, in areas of the country? You know, I, I uh, would have to answer that with, they're all over the place. So, you know, originally when we first began the franchise rollout in July of 2020, we were seeing that people were centralizing in major metros like, you know, Texas, Dallas, uh, Houston, San Antonio, Austin, in uh, Arizona, Tucson, uh, Florida, we'd have Orlando, Tampa, in, in Georgia, Atlanta, 
But what we found was COVID, you know, oddly enough, has changed the scope of how we live and work. And I have seen migration patterns in the United States just completely uh, open my eyes to where we're, where we're moving, where we're leaving, and where we're moving to. And so a lot of these uh, states that originally I hadn't, I hadn't pegged as very hot real estate markets became very hot real estate markets. And so now we're seeing a lot in the Midwest. We're seeing a lot in the South. Um, and it's, it's incredible. It's just incredible to see the expansion and, and, and see all the different markets that, uh, and reach that we've, we've had over the last 18 months. Have, have you, you know, when we first started the conversation about, um, you know, when you got into wholesaling, it was kind of the wild, wild west. Has it changed? I mean, is it still, is it still pretty as cutthroat as it used to be? Or is it a different playing field now? Or definitely starting to evolve. You know, myself, Brent Daniels and Pace Morby, we've, we really, I'd say about three years ago, began pushing the narrative of a more collaborative space. And that whole Wolf of Wall Street idea of, you know, kill what you eat, uh, eat what you kill, or, you know, um, make sure that if you, if, you know, if, if you don't get the deal, scorch the earth behind you so that no one else can, you know, that, that whole attitude has definitely shifted. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I don't believe that you, you, that in order for you to gain, someone has to lose. I think that the reason why there was just so much tarnish uh, on the on the industry was because people were operating unethically in many many instances, and when you do act in a more communal fashion, you have more resources available to you. You have more options and opportunity to, to do right by all of the people involved. And when you open up these opportunities to a greater number of buyers, you're able to pay more, which is good for the seller. And you know, and because of that, the entire business cycle is benefiting from it. And I've seen it absolutely starting to evolve. And uh, more and more so today than, than ever before is it a community of, of very um, entrepreneurial, uh, rugged individuals that are just trying to put stuff together, but also very open to helping one another and being collaborative. It's a beautiful place. You know, it's interesting when you have that mindset of abundance, things change, right? And awesome. it's, uh, it's that mindset of scarcity that, you know, it's people operate under that. Right. And, and if you can just really, and I'm a big believer in that, just the abundance mentality and there's so much business to go around. And if you just like what you said, collaborate or even, you know, work together, um, more deals are going to come from it versus, you know, the old, I'm going to scorch the earth to do whatever it can. And if I can't get the deal, no one else is going to get it. Right. So I, I think that's pretty cool. Um, talk a little bit about, you know, your, your background. I mean, you're an entrepreneur. Were, were, were your parents entrepreneurs? Were, did you grow up in that entrepreneur space? Talk about how you got into, you know, being an entrepreneur and a business owner. And then I want to come back and talk about your experiences through 2008 and what you learned and, and kind of where you're at today, because it sounds like you guys are just killing it, you know? And so yeah, I'll rephrase that question because I threw a lot at you there, but while, you know, going back to, you know, what, what enticed you to be into being an entrepreneur? Um, was your family doing it or tell me a little bit about that? Well, my father was an entrepreneur, my, is, you know, he's retired now, but he was an entrepreneur, but he struggled a lot, right? So him and his, his brothers and his dad, they had a truck stop. And, and so, you know, kind of like if you opened up a, a burger joint or, you know, a, 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 your own business where it required you to work in it and it was long hours, dirty work. Um, and the pay was terrible. You know, there was m many years where my dad didn't bring a paycheck home. 
And, uh, and, and because of that entrepreneurship was just scary for us, right? It was, it was scary because my dad, we didn't know if things were going to go well this month or not well this month. And if he was bringing home a paycheck or if he wasn't going to bring home a paycheck, my mother was a data entry operator. And then when she was laid off, she worked in a meatpacking factory. So I came from very humble means mm. and, um, entrepreneurship definitely wasn't what my parents were pushing me towards. In fact, uh, I'm East Indian in, in, in uh, you know, ethnicity. And in my culture, going to university and becoming a professional doctor, lawyer, accountant, uh, you know, these are the things, the status and the prestige uh, that, that my, my parents wanted me to attain. And so I actually went to university and I got a bachelor's of science in physiology and I had ambitions to become a medical doctor. Uh, in my last year of, of my undergrad, I very, very quickly realized that this wasn't for me. You know, I, I wrote the MCAT exam. Uh, sorry, I took the MCAT exam. I say we Canadians speak a little different. <laughs> the MCAT, and, uh, um, you know, I did, I did, I did fairly well on it. I, you know, I didn't ace it, but I didn't bomb it. I, I, I did well enough to get into med school. But the fact is, is that I, I had no reason to be a doctor. You know, yeah. my, my, um, my heart wasn't in it. I was doing it for the money. And I realized that, and I had that very difficult conversation with my family that I wanted to go and become an entrepreneur and, and figure it out. And that was heartbreaking. It was heartbreaking for my mom and dad. You know, they, they only saw so far as the, the way out is an entrepreneurship. The way to my, what my dad thought was like literally a, a terrible life was entrepreneurship. If you really wanted to make the, the money, if you really wanted to have freedom, you had to be a doctor. You know, you had to do, you had to do something like that. And so for many years, I, I, I watched my family struggle with my, my decision, but mm. you know, I'm, 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 I'm the type that has that spirit in them. I was in, I was an industrious kid and I always found ways to make money, uh, even if they weren't the best when I was young. Um, but I, I figured it out, you know, I figured out yeah. how to have pocket money. I figured it out. I, you know, I knew my parents didn't have a lot, so I had to figure it out for myself. And my, my mind has always been geared towards connecting the dots, which is essentially what I think entrepreneurship is, is, is seeing dots and figuring out ways to connect them so that you can get yourself in the, in the conversation. And for me, real estate wasn't something that anyone in my family had any experience with. So when I got into real estate, it was truly by accident. I was eavesdropping on a conversation my business partner was having with his dad. They were in real estate. They were builders. But my, but my first uh, entrance into entrepreneurship was in media, new media, actually. I, uh -huh. in, in the early 2000s, I was trying to convince people that the world was going away from print media and that they should all invest in building websites for their businesses. <laughs> and uh, like 2000, you know, 2000, 2001, I, I would literally call down the yellow pages and I would ask them, ask people if they'd heard of the internet and if they had if they'd be interested in buying a website for $600. But ultimately, uh, you know, those websites actually cost us $700 to build. So every time I'd make a sale, I'd lose a hundred bucks. So that was how, how, you know, inexperienced I was with understanding cash flow and business. And right. but it put me in a situation where I got to have that conversation with my business partner about a need they had. Him and his father were knocking down these old bungalows and building these duplexes and they needed more building lots. They needed more old homes that they could bulldoze to do that with. And, and I, I was listening to them gripe about not having any access to, to building lots. And so 
I interjected myself into that conversation. And the next day when I was walking my dog, I walked by a for rent, a for rent sign of this exact type of property they're looking for. And rather than just walk by, I called and I asked the landlord if she'd be interested in selling instead of renting. And her answer was for the right price. And, and she said that price was 350,000. My business partner's father was willing to pay 400,000 for that type of property. So now I had a $50,000 problem to solve and I had never heard of wholesaling. In fact, when I completed my first deal, I truly thought I invented the model. It wasn't true. Uh, I, obviously there had been many before me that, whole, that were wholesaling, but I was just so in, in shock and amazed by what I was able to put together. But I, I returned back to what I know, right. which was the phone book. And I started calling real estate lawyers and I started asking lawyers, uh, you know, and actually I didn't get through to many attorneys because as you know, there's a lot of gatekeepers and secretaries that pick up the phone. I had no money to pay any attorney for anything, but I got all the way to S David Steed. And uh, he's the attorney that was so fresh out of law school. He didn't have a secretary at the time. He picked up the phone and explained to me what I was trying to do was called a skip transfer. That's what the term was in, in Canada. And that's when you buy a property using uh, funds from the sale of that property. And uh, the, the, the difference between the two, the purchase and the sale is your profit. So he explained to me what I needed to do was have two contracts, one where I bought it as a, uh, and or nominee and one where I sold it and bring the contracts to him. And a couple of weeks later, he'd have a check for me. And it was really that simple. Wow. And that's how I began my journey into entrepreneurship and real estate. And I never looked back. That's awesome. So talk about, where were you, were you in Canada in 2008? No, were you, were you in Canada? I was in Canada in 2002 and, and that's, when I, that's when that first deal happened. And I, I did really well wholesaling from 2002 to 2008, made millions of dollars. And I decided to leave behind my core competency, which was wholesaling and I, and I entered into development. And that's where I got into trouble. So in 2006, I purchased four apartment buildings that my sister and I were gonna renovate and turn into condominiums. And uh, 2008 happened while we're mid construction on all those buildings. And not only did uh, we lose everything, but uh, I had my parents co-sign those loans as well. So all of us were homeless. And it was an interesting time. 2008 was definitely difficult for all of us. Uh, I decided to lick my wounds in, in, in Hollywood. So I left Canada and moved to Los Angeles to become a stand-up comedian where I spent you know, 2008 to 2012, just sort of figuring out my life. And then uh, real estate called me back. Wow. So you were really honestly doing uh, stand-up comedy? Yes, sir. That's pretty awesome. Yep. Talk about that experience a little bit. It was fun, man. I mean, you know, I obviously didn't make it because I'm not on a, a <laughs> podcast right now. I'm on a real estate podcast, but it was a good time. You know, I, I, I got to learn a lot about my mind and, and how comedy works and just the way that, the, um, you know, a joke is formed, why things are funny to people. And, and because of that, I've, uh, I've actually been able to bring a lot of that experience into my life now. And, you know, for anyone that has seen any ads that I create, I'm on, you know, Facebook ads and Instagram ads for my coaching product. Um, they're funny, right? That's my, my, yeah. my thing. And when I uh, also am, am, am doing my coaching, when I'm, when I'm sharing with others what I've learned, it's entertaining. And I think that today in, in this space of, of where it's so crowded that if you can not only teach at the highest level, but entertain people, 
you're in a different category in, in, in my opinion. That's awesome. So did you have any background in stand-up comedy or is it just something that you were just no. like, you know what, I'm just going to try no. and do it. I'm going to do it. Yeah. I, awesome. I had no background in it. I just, you know, what? you know, when you're that guy and, and in your friend circle and every time you say stuff, people laugh. Yeah. Uh, that's just kind of what my, my role was. I was the clown. Yeah. And because of that, because my mind worked that way, it was natural for me to, to do it. But I learned a lot. I mean, what I thought was funny at that time versus what was actually funny were completely different things. Um, it's a lot different from, you know, telling uh, penis and fart jokes to actually being, being, being intelligently funny, right? And yep. so there's a big gap between the two. And I had to figure out how to take that gap or navigate but, that gap. So did you hire a coach or were you getting trained or how'd you do that? I did. I did. I, there was, um, there's a lot of training available in, in, in LA. My, uh, uh, my tenure, uh, happened at uh, the upright citizens brigade, uh, which is, you know, has, has spit out plenty of famous comedians, uh, and, you know, Aziz Ansari, Amy Poehler, um, you know, a lot of, uh, uh Zach Alphanakis, a lot of really interesting and funny people have come from that, that stage. Uh, I actually, focused more on sketch comedy rather than stand-up. I did a lot of stand-up, but I really, really cut my teeth in sketch comedy because I, I enjoy the performance aspect of uh, sketches and also having other people to work off of is, is fun and interesting. That's awesome. So, you know, let, let's bring it back to 2008. And, you know, cause you said that you guys were crushing it. You were making millions of dollars and you, you got into some properties and what, what would, what would be the thing that you had learned from that, um, you know, cause I hear that a lot with, with people that are involved in real estate and doing different things. It's like 2008 crushed them. Right. And they, and they're, they're back at it. So what things have you learned that, um, from that experience to where, you know, if, if we have another market correction or downturn, which, you know, I believe we will, um, you know, how have you positioned yourself and, and what have you learned from that journey? Well, I, uh, first things first, I'm completely leverage averse. So, in 2008, I was mortgaged on everything. My personal house was mortgaged. My parents' house was was mortgaged. Uh, my cars were all leased or had you know big loans on them. Uh, my projects all had big leverage, you know, big loans on them, construction loans, and and everything had a bank attached. And what I learned this time around was cash or it's not for me. So you know the house I live in, no mortgage. I have no notes. I am, I'm all cash. My business, Keegley, we are all cash. We have no, no financing. Everything we buy is cash. We hold in cash. We, we, we never leverage. And it's just because I'm, I'm averse to it now. And I, I know that as long as I have my asset, it doesn't matter if I, um, you know, if it goes down and there's a correction, if I have no leverage on it, it I, I don't need to sell it. As long as I can, I don't have a, you don't have to worry about the bank coming and taking my cars and my, my house, I can ride it out for a few years if there was no income. And so that's, that's what I've done differently this time around. And then in addition to that, you know, I just made some different choices, right? I was in my twenties when the first, uh, my first rodeo. And when you're in your twenties, you make bad decisions with money, right? Mm -hmm. I had a million dollars worth of cars. I had a girlfriend I shouldn't have had, you know, I had a lot of, um, I had a lot of liabilities in my life and uh, very little discipline. And, mm -hmm. and that is, uh, not the case today. You know, I'm, I'm a happily married man. I have an amazing family. 
my wife is my rock. She, you know, I met her during the tough parts of my life. And so not only is uh, that an, an awesome thing, but, you know, you know that uh, that's your ride or die, you know, somebody who's been with you through it all, um, you know, the tough days, and now we get to enjoy the good days together. And, and that's beautiful. So you, you learn a lot, you learn a lot. And I'm, you know, I'm definitely more disciplined. And also, I'm a lot more understanding. Uh, I'm a lot more understanding of people, a lot more understanding of situations. You know, when you're when you're young and and you you really don't know the world through experience, you just read things or hear things. You have to you got to really get into the crap before you can come out the other side of it. And you know, I think uh, I, I I paid my dues. What would you say be the one thing that you know through your your experiences? Um, your I mean, you know, you got quite a story, right? To real estate, to stand up comedy, to trying different ventures, right? The things that aren't easy. What would, what would say that has been your biggest um, secret to success? I think my biggest secret to success is knowing that I am where I am on purpose. You know, I, I had to experience that. I had to experience that, that fall I had to, I had to experience the, the the time in LA. I had to I had to learn from all of it, and I think that we are so as a society we're so uh, trained through media, through our heroes and mentors. We're we're trained to be hard on ourselves, to be hard on ourselves for where we are in our current situations. And I would say to I would say to anybody who has a goal or is asked for something different, great. And don't dishonor where you are right now. You're there on purpose. Yeah, there's there's no shortcut to greatness, is there? And I think no. a lot of a lot of people forget that. And you know, um, as entrepreneurs, it's you know, we if you don't learn from your failures, then you can't appreciate them. But if you sit back and you know realize, okay, there are certain things that I did here, certain things I did here that can make it better in the long run. It's not easy going through that, right? But to what you I really like what you said is you're here on purpose, right? You're here by design. And I think it's, it's all through the life experiences and how we handle ourselves. And, you know, um, the people that are successful, you know, we look at oftentimes where they are today, but we don't, we didn't see them back in the days where they were, you know, could barely pay for rent or barely, barely buy food or, you know, the struggles that they had lost at all and all those types of things. And I think that that's, you know, a good reminder because entrepreneur, yeah, it's a risk, but I, you know, the perseverance and the, in the, uh, the, the, um, forward thinking it takes too is, is really a, an important thing. So, absolutely. so, uh, man, that's awesome. So why don't you give the uh, listeners a, a little bit of um, information, how they can reach out to you and learn more about your company and, um, where they can go and, and find you. We'd love to. So I'm really visible on Instagram and Facebook. You can find me on my Instagram handle at J-D-A-M-J-I. That's at J Damji uh, on Facebook at Jamil Damji, J-A-M-I-L-D-A-M-J-I. Also, I have a YouTube channel, Jamil Damji. I give away a lot of free content. So if you're looking to get into wholesaling, you want to understand the business model, please, please, please get to my YouTube channel and, and check it out. I do a weekly podcast with Brent Daniels and Payson Morby all wholesale related. You, it's a live Q&A. So you can uh, join us on our, uh, you know, and ask any questions you might have about the business model. If you're a rehabber or a portfolio owner, and you're looking to take a look at some of our inventory, 
You can go to keeglyhomes.com. If you have a property and you'd like us to buy it, visit keegley.com. Uh, and anything, uh, you know, any, anything else, uh, you reach out to me, send me a message. I'm su super accessible. I respond to people. I, uh, I enjoy connecting with other entrepreneurs, people that are on the journey. And just remember that uh, you 1000% deserve it. You know, you've got all of us, we all have the power of God in us and, 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 and we don't have enough people reminding us of that. You are here on purpose. You are a special human being and you deserve all of it. Awesome, dude. Well, it's, it was so fun to get to know you a little bit. I know we, we're going to meet up here in Tampa in a couple of days, but um, actually it's next week, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I got to buy, so, buy my ticket. I know, right? So I'm looking forward to seeing you there. But again, I really appreciate you spending some time and, and sharing about your company and your, your story, man. It's, it's, it's quite the journey. So congratulations for all your success as well. Thank you, John. I appreciate that. Uh, and I'm excited to meet you in Tampa. All right, buddy. Take care.